The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome back to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the British Museum in Crisis, the Sao Paulo Biennial and Suti in Dusseldorf. I talked to Martin Bailey, the art newspaper's London correspondent, about the theft scandal at the British Museum and its implications for the museum in the future. The artist, Grada Quilomba, is one of four curators of this year's Sao Paulo Biennial called Choreographies of the Impossible, and she joins me to discuss the show. And this episode's work of the week is Village Square at Serre, a painting made in 1920 by Kaim Soutine. It's one of dozens of paintings in the exhibition Against the Current, which opens this week at K20 in Dusseldorf, Germany. The exhibition's co-curator, Susanna Meyer-Busa, tells me about the painting. A reminder that you can subscribe to the art newspaper by visiting our website and clicking the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. You can choose from a digital, complete or student subscription. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With. And do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, we'd long been planning to do an item on this podcast about what's going on at the British Museum after enduring problems with repatriation claims, the condition of its building and debates about sponsorship. But then, in the past couple of weeks, the astonishing news that thousands of items in its collection had been stolen, reportedly by a senior member of its curatorial staff, has propelled the museum into an unprecedented crisis. I spoke to our London correspondent, Martin Bailey, about what we know and the long-term implications for the UK's most visited art museum. Martin, if you don't mind me saying, you've been reporting on the visual arts and the art world for a number of years now, and I can't imagine there have been many more extraordinary stories than this. Yes, and before my time too, because I think this is probably the most serious crisis which has hit the British Museum since the Second World War. I mean, the long-term ramifications will be very serious um, for many, many years to come. And we must remember that the British Museum is the premier UK um, museum, and it's one of the top handful of museums in the whole world. So when things go wrong, it's very bad for us all. Indeed. Before we talk about those implications, Martin, can we go back and just set the facts straight? So what do we know about what happened and when? Well, the shock announcement came on the 16th of August when the British Museum put out a press statement saying that there had been a theft of, and I quote here, Greek and Roman jewellery and gems of semi-precious stones and glass dating from the 15th century BC to the 19th century AD. Now, we didn't expect that announcement. And uh, initially, when I heard it, I thought, well, maybe, uh, you know, a dozen or two objects have um, been stolen. But of course, we now know the figure is much, much more. Now, to go back to the beginning, the theft seemed to have begun about 10 years ago. And it was in 2020 that uh, a Danish gem specialist, Itai Gradel, contacted the British Museum to suggest that there may have been thefts from the Greek and Roman department. And these allegations were not examined properly. They went up high. They went up to, first of all, to Jonathan Williams, who is the deputy director of the British Museum, and then to the director, Hartvig Fisher but they were not examined in the depth that they should have been, and they were simply dismissed. Was the identity of the person who was supposedly stealing the objects known to the dealer at that time? Uh, Yes, he was, and the British Museum was informed of the name. And the name was Peter Higgs, who was a very senior curator in the Greek and Roman department. He's been at the British Museum he was at the British Museum, I should say, for 30 years. And he was actually acting keeper or chief curator of the Greek and Roman section from uh, the end of 2021 until this January. That suggests, therefore, that despite the fact that he was named to the British Museum as the person who was allegedly stealing these objects, they promoted him even though there was this suspicion. That is correct. Or at least after they'd promoted him, they kept him in post 
uh, in charge of the department when there were very strong allegations. We should say that Peter Higgs's family have denied the allegations. He's not been charged with anything yet. We know that the police have interviewed somebody, but we do not have that identity confirmed in terms of any crimes committed. Correct. Yes, that's important. Okay. So, Peter Higgs has been named. The British Museum have have said that there is nothing to see here. What happens next? Well, first of all, we have um, the director resigning, uh, I should point out. He'd already announced his resignation on the 28th of July. That was three weeks before the theft announcement. Now, in retrospect, it's fairly clear that he decided to go because of the news that was about to break. But of course, the public didn't know then. And then after the theft announcement, there was a week or two, and then he announced that rather than leaving next year, he decided to leave immediately because of the row over the theft. The interesting thing is that he had obviously cast doubt on the testimony of Itai Gradel. Yeah. And he apologised for this in his statement, didn't he? So not only was there a sort of fudging originally from the British Museum, even when the news emerged of this, they got lots of the communication wrong afterwards. Well, I'm afraid they were in crisis mode at that point and um, people were not necessarily acting as rationally as they should (laughs) and would do normally. Absolutely. So Fisher resigns. What do we know now about what the British Museum are doing? Well, after Fisher resigned, a few hours later, Jonathan Williams, the deputy, said he was stepping aside from his role as deputy director. So the two top people in the museum have now effectively left. I'm not quite sure who's running the museum now because we don't actually have an acting director who's been appointed, but the trustees will have to do that very quickly. And I believe that appointment will have to be uh, approved by the Prime Minister. Presumably, it will be happening in the next few days. Now, as to what's going to happen now, the first move is that the trustees have set up an independent investigation to determine what happened, and even more importantly, what reforms there should be. So that investigation is presumably now beginning. Uh, We haven't been told how long it will take, I imagine months, but presumably there will be pressure for them to complete the work quickly because until the security arrangements have been improved, other objects are still at risk. And the people that are doing that are Nigel Boardman, who's a lawyer and former trustee, and Lucy Dorsey, who's from the British Transport Police. I presume they're going to be looking into the full organisation, including trustees. Would that be the case? Well, I think they're going to look into, first of all, what happened inside the museum, what happened when the allegations were made, uh, how they were investigated, perhaps even more importantly, what the security arrangements were in the storeroom where the objects went missing, and uh, then what communication there was between the museum director and the trustees. Now, it seems to me that the trustees ought to have been informed at an earlier stage. Technically, the whole collection of the British Museum is under the authority of the trustees, not the museum director. So they're ultimately responsible. And as soon as the museum director had even suspicions of theft, the trustees should have been informed. I should also say that the extent of the theft has now emerged. And to begin with, we thought it might have been a relatively small number of objects. But George Osborne, the chairman of the trustees, has now said that 2,000 objects appear to have been missing. I mean, that's an absolute disaster. One of the things that it's important to stress is that these are not major objects that are likely to be on display in the museum, are they? What do we know about the actual nature of the object? You said this sort of brief description that the BM have given. Yeah. But were they likely to have been on display at any point? Some might have been and probably were. But in general, they were sort of research material. And I mean, the British Museum's collection is many millions of objects. And there are 50,000 objects actually on display at the museum to the public. Now, it's important that the whole collection is kept together. It is available for study. So if someone's doing research on something, they can go in and make a private arrangement to see the objects. But it's a large number of relatively small, but nevertheless significant objects dating back, as I say, to the 15th century BC. And some of the objects have been in the museum for 200 years. And, you know, one must stress the importance of the objects that have been taken. 
Going back to the trustees, you've identified some inconsistencies in the accounts of George Osborne, the chair of the British Museum Trustees, former Chancellor of the Exchequer and Conservative politician. Tell me what you found. Well, the Danish expert contacted Osborne via an intermediary in October last year. Now, we assume that message got to Osborne very quickly within days, but we don't actually know. And Osborne himself has said that he only learnt earlier this year. Now, I suspect by earlier this year, he probably meant January. So it's curious that there's a sort of time lag there. It may only be a few weeks, but if you're investigating a theft, it's actually quite important. And the other question is why he didn't hear earlier. I mean, the museum director, Fisher, I would have thought had a responsibility to tell him. Osborne had an important role in overseeing the museum, so he surely should have been in contact with the museum to ask, you know, what's new and what's happening or what should I be thinking about? So I think one of the questions that the inquiry will have to look at is uh, the role of the trustees and in particular the role of the chairman, Osborne, who of course was the former Chancellor of the Exchequer. Now in addition to that there were some questions about the DCMS, the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, and when they were informed and indeed when they should have been informed. What do we know? Well the Culture Department told me that they'd been informed earlier this year and again that may have been January. But the question is why they weren't told earlier, because the agreement between the government, which is the main funder of the British Museum and the museum itself, states that in cases of fraud or suspicions of fraud, the government department should be informed and informed promptly. And that does not appear to have been done. So again, the inquiry set up by the trustees will presumably examine this question. And I'm sure that um, the culture minister will also be asking the British Museum why they had not been informed earlier. When George Osborne was on the BBC Today programme on the 26th of August, the day after Fisher had resigned, he said that he didn't think there had been a cover-up at the top of the organisation, but he did suggest that it was possible that there was some sort of groupthink, which was the term that he used. Do you think that there was any sort of protecting each other among the people at the higher echelons of the British Museum? Well, I don't think it was sort of an organised cover-up. I think it was a different problem, but equally serious. I think it was just assumed that someone who was a curator, and particularly a senior curator who'd been there so many years, who had responsibility for looking after the collection, that they couldn't possibly have done it. So I think they just thought it was unthinkable. It's almost a complacency. You know, we are the British Museum. We hire the best people. Our people are honourable, moral, fine, upstanding individuals, basically. Well, I think I think that 99.9% of curators are. Yes, I mean, absolutely. when you actually meet them, uh, they're really committed to the field that they're involved in and they're committed to doing their best to protect it and if they're being transported for an exhibition to look after them. I mean, it goes completely against the grain. So I think it is most unusual, but of course it's possible, and it happened in this case. Indeed, and it does make one wonder about the motivations for doing this. One can't fathom how somebody in such a leading role in one of the great institutions could behave like this, and we may well, I guess, never know. Going back to the items themselves, there are no, as far as we know, official photographs being distributed of these items in terms of the police and so on. Do we know why? Well, I was very surprised because normally when something is stolen from a museum, um, at least nowadays, photographs and descriptions, dimensions and everything would be released. And that's very important because it alerts the trade, the art trade or the antiquities trade, to look out for these objects and it hasn't been done. So I've asked this question to a number of people. Osborne suggested somehow that it was not going to aid recovery. Yeah, that somehow not everybody was as public-spirited as you or I might be if we'd acquired these objects. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm assuming these objects have been dispersed to a large number of people. It's 2,000 objects. I don't assume that these 2,000 objects are sitting in one villain's sitting room. And if they're dispersed, then uh, some people might return them to the British Museum, particularly if they've only paid a small sum for them. Dealers will keep an eye out for them. They might even be in dealer's stock. And that seemed to be the most sensible way of increasing the chances of recovery. Obviously, it's a bit embarrassing to 
publish that list. And it may have been that there was some initial hesitation on the museum's side because they wanted to sort of cover up the extent. But the other problem is that the museum doesn't seem to know exactly what has been taken. And that's because of the poor or old-fashioned bookkeeping that they've had and records. Um, So some items are known, but not all of the collection is properly catalogued. Much of it is not yet online. So I don't think they know what's been taken, which is obviously very embarrassing for the museum. Indeed it is. Let's move on then to sort of some of the problems that that are emerging for the BM from this. Let's start with the cataloguing. We know that there may be as many as four million items that may not be catalogued. It is not a simple fix, is it, to just go, okay, we are now going to catalogue them so that this doesn't happen again? No, I mean, it is obviously essential to do so in the medium term, but it will be very expensive and time-consuming. You will need skilled people to catalogue and input the material, and um, if there are four million objects, um, you can just work out how many minutes you need for each object and how many person hours you're going to need. But it obviously is necessary from a security point of view. But the other point is that we want to know what's in the collection because it's only valuable if people can access it online and see what is there. So an object that is in store where we have no records is of very little use in the present. It may be use in the future if you can catalogue it. So it's essential that the objects are catalogued. And I think that's going to be one of the recommendations of the inquiry But it will be very expensive and it comes at a moment when museums are under financial pressure. Will they get any extra money? I wouldn't have thought the government will be particularly sympathetic. Will that mean that money has to be diverted from other parts of the museum's responsibilities? That would be unfortunate. Some of the critics of the British Museum, I'm thinking Dan Hicks, for instance, have have said that in a sense, the museum has been neglecting its duty to properly curate and catalogue the collection. Is that a widespread perception? What do you think? Well, I guess the internet has changed a lot, uh, certainly in terms of public access and the ease of putting good colour photographs online. I think something like a third of the museum's objects are online. So until the internet came along, it was very difficult to do this properly. You could argue, and you probably should argue, that the process should have been accelerated and gone faster than it has. But you can understand that it's a huge number of objects to deal with. Indeed. The allocation of funding to scholarship would also have been competing with the allocation of funding to, for instance, fix the roof over parts of the gallery where there was water getting in and so on. So there are limited resources. We know that the British Museum has been under pressure for a number of years in this sense. The the building is in many ways creaking, you know. So it's about the competing resources and the fact that actually, even though it is such an august institution, it has financial pressures and quite severe financial pressures, doesn't it? Yes, and those have been going on for years. And it's not only the building, but, you know, if you want to put on exhibitions, that costs money. If you want to do educational work, uh, that also costs money. And it is difficult to decide what the priorities are, but that's why you appoint a director who can make those decisions and a chairman of the trustees who can um, guide those decisions. Now, Hartwig Fisher resigned just at the moment when apparently we were due to hear about something called the master plan for the British Museum. I hadn't sort of grasped really until now just how massive a project this is. They're talking about it as a multi-generation project. Can you outline broadly what it might contain? Yes, I mean, it was not much has been published about it, but essentially the master plan is to deal with two things, to deal with the total refurbishment of the building in Bloomsbury. And it's mainly a 19th century building. And behind the scenes are all sorts of problems, as you say, leaking roofs, pipe work, electrical work uh, that needs to be done. So the whole building needs to be modernised. But um, equally important are plans to redisplay the collection. The display arrangements haven't essentially changed for generations and for example as Fisher pointed out in an interview to the art newspaper a few years ago you have Egyptian 
stone sculptures on the ground floor and then the mummies on a different floor. And it's very difficult for people to make the connection between the two. And the areas of the world, which are very badly represented in the British Museum, particularly the Pacific, Latin America, for example, we now want to move away from just seeing civilization and culture in terms of Europe and the Mediterranean to see it in global terms. So the master plan was a very good but very ambitious idea. Now, it will take a long time. I mean, I think it will take decades. Um, I don't think it will be completed until after 2050 or even later. It hasn't yet been costed, but it will be extremely expensive. It will be hundreds of millions of pounds, many hundreds, and I suspect over one billion pounds. Now, it was due to be announced about a year ago, and the announcement has been delayed for various reasons. In August, we were told that it would be announced in the autumn. I don't think that will happen because of the theft. I think they will have to deal with the theft, and that will mean waiting the um, investigation, the inquiry, which has been set up, which will take months. And you can only launch something as ambitious as this, you know, in the right atmosphere. And you can't do that until you've dealt with the aftermath of theft. And that's it. Basically, anybody who's going to give money to the British Museum, whether that's government, whether it's private individuals, or whether it's corporate donors and so on, they're going to want to know that the British Museum is in a, organisationally in a good state, right? They're going to need confirmation that it's being steered in the right Absolutely, direction. Absolutely, definitely. And they want to know, importantly, the collection is safe. Why should you give money to an institution if items can uh, disappear? And you're quite right. First of all, they want to get a substantial government grant for the building project. Now, the government now would turn around to them and uh, will say, get your house in order first, quite rightly. It would hardly be a vote winner to give money to the British Museum. It would give quite the wrong impression. When you come to private donors, of course, they also want to be satisfied that the place is well run. And to put it in context, you know, it's a difficult environment for fundraising. I mean, first of all, we had COVID. There's much more questions asked about corporate sponsorship. The British Museum was under considerable criticism because it accepted BP money and uh, Sackler money has also been awkward. And finally, it's hardly the moment to get money from wealthy Russian donors. Uh, So it's a very difficult environment anyway without the theft situation. But the theft situation, I think, has made it impossible in the short run to launch the master plan. Then there's the question of restitution. And we've heard comments from a range of nations who have long-term disputes or conversations, if we were to put it kindly, with the British Museum about objects from those nations which were, they claim, stolen and so on. So, for instance, the Culture Ministry of Nigeria has commented, we've had comments from Greece and so on. In terms of reputation, in terms of the British Museum's arguments about why it has these objects, again, it couldn't have come at a worse time. No, it it is difficult. I mean, actually, the British Museum cannot deaccession objects from its collection under of the British Museum Act. It can only do so in very exceptional circumstances. So that is the main reason why they are not returning objects uh, or ownership of objects. But you're quite right, of course, that countries like Greece in particular, who've long claimed the Parthenon marbles, now say, quite understandably, if you can't look after your Greek objects in your collection, why don't you return the marbles uh, to us? We've got the Parthenon Museum, which was opened only a few years ago with state-of-the-art security. They'll be much safer there. There'll be a lot of noise about restitution. Those people who are claiming will jump on the bandwagon, if you like. So we're going to hear a lot of that in the next few weeks. I'm not sure that it actually changes the situation very much in real terms, but there will certainly be intensified restitution claims. Does it, though, mean that when the British Museum comes to appoint the next director, they have to appoint somebody who has a handle on restitution because as you say the voices are only going to be amplified these questions are not going to go away so do they need to change tack in terms of the kind of line if you like because Fisher very much towed the same line as the previous director Neil McGregor which is 
the British Museum is a great repository of international culture. It's for everyone across the world and it has a unique role in safeguarding these objects for the entire world to come and see and so on. Does that need to shift when the new director comes in? Does it need a rethink, in other words? Well, it's really a question for the trustees because the collection is vested in the trustees and they're going to have to make the decision rather than the director. Now, whoever is the new director is going to have a very difficult job. I mean, first of all, they've got to come in and deal with the theft situation. Morale at the museum is obviously very poor. There have got to be lots of reforms. Allocation of money and funds will be difficult. Everyone is going to be wanting to sort of ensure that their department doesn't suffer. And of course, to add to all of these, there's the restitution issue. And uh, certainly the new director will have to be very au fait with uh, the situation and deal with it diplomatically and sensibly as possible. It's actually not going to be very easy to find someone who actually wants to take over this job. I was going to say, hasn't it almost become an impossible job now? Uh, uh, Yes, I think you have to perform some miracles if you take this on. Um, And this is one of the problems, actually, that the museum is facing, because we're obviously going to have an acting director. And the idea was, um, when Fisher resigned, that the new director would be appointed next summer. You first of all have to decide on the job description, if you like. You then have to advertise it, give people a couple of months to apply and go through interviewing and everything. Then the person, if they're in a senior position, which they would be, is going to have to give several months' notice to where they're working now. So the summer was actually the earliest. So we're going to have a year with an acting director. And then the question is, who is going to be the new director? It's such a difficult job. And, you know, if you're, say, working in a major European museum, you might have been interested in a promotion to the British Museum. But are you going to be wanting to take this on? It's a real challenge, but it's got to be done. And let's hope the right person applies and is appointed. It'll be fascinating to follow it. Martin, thank you as ever. Thank you. Since we recorded this conversation, the British Museum's appointed Carl Heron, its Director of Scientific Research, as Interim Deputy Director. You can read all our reports on this story at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android. Coming up, the Sao Paulo Biennial and a Village Square by Soutine. But first, this week's news bulletin. Cuban and Cuban US artists, including Tanya Bruguera and Coco Fusco, have signed an open letter urging the international art world to focus on the Cuban government's repression of its artists, its persistent human rights violations and the country's humanitarian crisis. The 24 artists, scholars and arts figures also call on the art world to boycott cultural events organised and funded by the Cuban government. In the letter first published on the Hyperallergic website, the signatories highlight other art world ethical issues, including sponsorship and allude to the recent control in Turkey regarding the dismissal of Daphne Ayas as curator of the 2024 Istanbul Biennial. But the letter states that the crisis in Cuba has not received enough scrutiny to provoke similar concern about the ethics of cooperating with the Cuban state. Tate announced on Thursday the appointment of curators of ecology and First Nations and indigenous art, new roles that Tate says are part of its strategy to explore new perspectives on global art histories. Marlene Boschen is the institution's first adjunct curator dedicated to art and ecology, who Tate says will explore narratives around ecological issues and further Tate's commitment to climate justice. And Kimberly Moulton, a Yorta Yorta woman from Australia, will take on the role of adjunct curator specialising in First Nations and indigenous art. She joins from Museum. Museums Victoria in Australia, where she was senior curator First Peoples. Boschen and Moulton start their roles this month. And finally, hundreds of works from Los Angeles' famous Ace Gallery are to be liquidated via an online auction. On the 12th of August, bidding opened for roughly 300 artworks described as the last remaining inventory of Ace, which was founded by the dealer Douglas Christmas in 1967. Proceeds from the auction will be distributed among the creditors still left wanting a decade after Christmas filed for bankruptcy in 2013. Based on low estimates, the liquidators hope to generate more than $230,000 for creditors through the sale. Ace Gallery worked with new numerous artists associated with the minimalism, light and space and land art movements, including Michael Heiser, Donald Judd and James Terrell, but became a magnet for lawsuits brought by artists over alleged theft and non-payment. You can read all these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. 
The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. 2023 marks the 50th anniversary of Christie's in Amsterdam. In celebration of this occasion, the International Auction House will stage Made in Holland, celebrating 50 years of Christie's Amsterdam, a landmark online auction offering the best of Dutch art from old master and 19th century paintings to modern and contemporary art, led by Carol Appel's 1953 masterwork, Crying Girl. Before bidding opens from the 26th of September to the 10th of October, you can browse the lots on offer from the 19th of September onwards on Christie's website and explore the global achievements of some of the most pioneering and influential Dutch artists across 400 years of art history. If you happen to be in the beautiful city of Amsterdam between 26th of September and 9th of October, why not visit Christie's galleries and view these works in person? Entry to their exhibition is free and open to all. Find out more at christies.com. Welcome back. Now, on the 6th of September, the 35th edition of the Sao Paulo Biennial opens. Called Choreographies of the Impossible, this latest iteration of Brazil's most prestigious biennial brings together 121 artists and collectives spanning multiple artistic disciplines and generations. The exhibition has been conceived by a team of four curators, the artist and writer Grada Quilomba, anthropologist and curator Elio Menezes, curator and activist Diane Lima, and Manuel Borja Filel, former director of the Reino Sofia Museum in Madrid. I spoke to Grada Colomba as the final touches were being made to the installation. Grada, this is the first Biennale after the end of Bolsonaro's presidency. And we've heard so much about Brazil as being a divided country. And I'm really interested to hear your assessment of the mood there in Sao Paulo and to what extent you are attempting to appeal to multiple publics in a way to address the kind of divisions, if, if indeed you think they are a significant issue. From my perspective, what we were very busy and concerned with was to create a biennial that really dismantled many of the definitions and terminologies that we have been using and repeating again and again. And not only with the artistic practices and the artists, but also with the storytelling or the choreography that we try to bring into this biennial. The Biennial of São Paulo, as you know, it is a free entrance biennial, which I think is very unique around the world. It's located in a huge park, Ibirapuera. So it was very important for us to work in the curatorial text, in the curatorial concept and the expography and architecture in a way that people really feel invited to enter the space and to participate. And more than affirming what we already know, and what we repeatedly confirmed to know, I think we were very busy on creating an exhibition where we ask ourselves what we do not know and why, and how is this intimately linked with power and with violence. So I think it is a biennial, independently of before or post-Bolsonaro and Lula, I think it's a biennial in its time chronologically, globally, that is very busy with creating a platform where new questions can be raised. Tell me more about what you're dismantling. You mentioned about there are ideas that, in a way that you're dismantling. Have you chosen artists that are taking on very particular aspects of um, cultural debates and so on and, and, and particular issues who are sort of, in essence, dismantling those ideas through their practice? Is it about their worldview as much as the, the cultural products that they produce? Well, that's a very important question. I think, above all, as you see, we don't have a particular topic, which is very rare uh, to have a biennial without a topic. And we start right there, that it was very important for us not to have a specific term or specific topic to be explored, like decolonization or feminism or climate change. But above all, we were very busy on the artistic practice that is able to embrace the complexity of all these different issues and to see how all these different topics can no longer be seen and presented as separated, but there's an intersectionality that has to be 
presented at a biennial. Right. So this is really our response in this sense. So there's not a specific topic, but the choreographies of the impossible indeed. How many and different artists create a choreography and move in between these context and texture of impossibilities and how do they look at the urgent questions of today and if we open this platform as an open platform where new questions can be elaborated we are also able to see the complexity of the work and the artistic practice of the artists and also to see something that was very beautiful to experience is that we are a collective and Sometimes we suggested the same artists, but for different reasons. Ah. And that was a very beautiful process that we look at them and we chose them for different reasons. So this was very important. We also saw how important it was to be a collective with different backgrounds, as well as, for instance, in this process to see artists that if we would work with this idea of nation which is very anchored in the history of colonization. And it can be so problematic because many of the artists cross different nations and some artists do not anchor themselves in a specific nation, but their territory crosses different nations. So I think it's this moment where we really have to rethink what we know and why do we know that and what we do not know and why not. Yeah. So these are several examples of how important it is to dismantle. So some artists, for instance, it was a very beautiful experience in these very intense conversations that we realize that some artists are quite intimate, even though in the geopolitics and the geography, they are very much apart. But then in the expography of this biennial, they are close to each other because there's a link uh, in the storytelling, in the choreography that they make. So it, it can be an artist from Palestina close to an artist, a Mapuche artist from Guatemala, but the storytelling continues. And that was beautiful to put together. It's beautiful. It's very emotional to look and to go into this process so deeply. And that was beautiful. Yeah. That, I think, is the choreographies of the impossible Tell me about the sort of levels of the impossibilities in life that the artists are contending with, because that's one of the things that strikes me is you're speaking about artists who in various different ways are dealing with forms of impossibility. Were you careful to choose artists who could speak to very particular issues? I know you've talked about the intersectionality there, but did you choose artists often because of the circumstances in which they live, as well as the work they produce, if you know what I mean, in the sense that from different parts of the world, for instance, and in parts of the world that are experiencing great crises, whether that be in relation to climate or in relation to economics and so on? Well, it's really a result of our research, the artists that were chosen. But we were very busy with the artistic practice and the complexity of the artistic practice and how this is a response to this title called The Choreographies of the Impossible. How do we become the impossible? How do we maneuver the impossible? And how do we create the possible within impossibilities? And even the question, what is impossible and what is the impossible so all these questions were raised during this process and the artists that were chosen were in continuous response to these questions and raised even more and further questions then that brought us to define also a protocol of politics how we want to work so to respond to your question, something that became very, very fundamental to us was the politics to create a criterion or um, the politics of distribution of resources and money. That was very important to us, to start defining and making decisions or protocol that says we came to the conclusion that it would be very important that artists that are very established do not receive a commission, but they bring 
works that are existing and instead that the commissions are only offered to artists that come from peripheric uh, circumstances or uh, the so-called global south or for younger artists that really need this momentum to create new work and many times do not have the possibility to create new work even though they have the talent, the know-how and the competence to do it. But this importance of having a clear distribution of goods, resources and money. So, for instance, this was a conversation that we had with all the artists and that was very welcomed by very established artists to say, oh, this is a, even a better reason for me to participate. If it's like that, I want to participate in such a biennial where this was never taken so seriously. So we were very careful to distribute the money to younger artists and artists from indigenous territories, from diasporic, from marginalized collectives that uh, range in different topics. As I said, they are very intersectional. So when uh, LGBTQ collective works. The topics really are intersectional. It goes from uh, racism to uh, climate change to borders to migration politics to uh, human rights. I think what we were really interested is to see the complexity that we as artists always integrating the work but many times the work is reduced to one topic or to one terminology right. and there's a difficulty to read the complexity of what is created besides the politics with all its aesthetics and artistic practice and materials and genres there's all this complexity translated into the artwork that many times disappears and that for us was very important to focus on Tell me about the role of the artists who are no longer with us. There's several late artists in the show. I'm thinking about Wilfredo Lamb and Charles White, for instance. What role do they play? It's very important to have this sense of, this chronological sense. We worked a lot with this importance of looking at time as not a linear time. And we saw the urgency to go beyond these Western comprehension of time, a past, a present, and a future. And this detachment between how time is fragmented, how we were taught to look at time fragmented, which does not help us much to solve our problems. And we were very keen on looking at time as in the African diasporic tradition is looked at as the indigenous knowledge is looked at as something that is a spiral. It's not detached from each other. The yesterday, the today and the tomorrow coexist. And these are a knowledge that many times we bring into our artistic practice and knowledge and intellectual work, but that in practice, in the platforms, is always seen as fragmented with in the Western tradition. So we had a, an international commission of thinkers that were in conversation with us. Leda Martins is one of them, who was a very important African-Brazilian thinker and philosopher, who wrote his beautiful book about time and spiral time and performance, and how time, based on the African a philosophy and how time is actually spiral. It coexists constantly. We worked with a wonderful philosopher such as Françoise Berger, who then brought this museum of tomorrow. How is a museum without objects? How do we create an exhibition without objects? And she turns all these Western definitions that are so anchored into the colonial time, into a new time, and to look at, again, how this time coincides and how do we think of space and time beyond the languages that were given to us. So, again, I think we were very busy to look and revise 
the languages and vocabulary that were given to us and that's so anchored in a patriarchal and colonial system and that no longer can tell the stories that we need to tell today and do not allow many artists to be part of the platform because if the platform embody these languages is not possible. Gerada, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The Sao Paulo Biennial Choreographies of the Impossible is at the Cicillo Matarazzo Pavilion in Sao Paulo in Brazil from the 6th of September until the 10th of December. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. On 2nd of September, the exhibition Kaim Sutin Against the Current opens at K20, one of the venues of the Kunstsammlung Nordrhein-Westfalen in Dusseldorf, Germany. It focuses on the artist born in modern-day Belarus who moved to Paris in 1913 only to live in abject poverty and squalor before achieving almost overnight success when, in 1922 and 1923, the US collector Alfred Barnes bought some 52 of his paintings. The exhibition is co-curated by Suzanne Anna Maya Busa, and she told me about one of the key early works in the show, Village Square at Serre from 1920. Susanna, where was Soutine when he painted this extraordinary work? La Place du Village were painted in Serre, a village in the French Pyrenees, where Soutine lived from 1990 to 1922. His gallerist, Leopold Soborowski, sent him to the village near the Spanish border. Sare is a legendary place and several other artists, for instance, Henri Matisse, Pablo Picasso and George Braque, they spent their some time and experienced their breakthrough. For Soutine, who spends three very lonely years there, it becomes a, a time of remarkable artistic development. Right. And why did he choose this particular subject? There are several paintings of the houses in Sare, aren't there? Yes, you have to know it's the time after the First World War and the world is out of balance. And especially this painting, La Place du Village, shows the village square in Serre with its wonderful trees. And it is like in an earthquake. The scenery is tumbling. And in the middle ground of the painting are the round place de la Liberté and the whitewashed house with red roofs, but the ground tumbles down. To the right, the plain trees, they are in an arc with it. And the next moment, a gigantic wave will collapse over the square. And that's impressing. Yes, it's incredibly impressive, isn't it? It's so powerful. Yes, and the, the other houses in the row bend to the left, trying to fight against the threatening groundlessness. And there's a black figure in an upright position, hands on hips, and watching the nightmarish scene from the front edge of the picture. And by the way, historical photographs of this exact place show how closely Soutine has kept to the real conditions there. Oh, that's interesting. And and what were the conditions that he painted the work in? Because he lived in abject poverty for so much of his time. He was disheveled. You know, the famous story about Barnes asking him to take a bath and so on. Tell me more about the conditions he was in when he painted this work. Oh, yes. His gallerist had not been very gentle with him. He had lodged Soutine in a shabby barn and provided him with some money. And in return, he expects well-painted works that he can sell. Mm-hmm. Soutine is lonely in Saray, has few contacts and suffers. As a result, it is a time shortly after the First World War, the people around him are marked by the war experiences, bewildered, must first find their way again. And I always see Soutine a little bit represented in the black border figure, reduced to helpless spectatorship. Also, the world we know is in danger of collapsing. This is an experience of the village of the whole country, of the whole society, but also of Soutine, who as an emigrant carries the loss of his homeland all his life and remains an outsider. 
Right. That's very fascinating. It's a kind of self-portrait. Where does it fit in with his painting of the time? We know that he was making portraits, his extraordinary portraits, but is this a kind of leap forward or is it typical of many of the paintings that he made at the time? Sotin was living in Paris when the city became a centre of abstract painting in the 1920s and 30s. So artists such as Kazimir Malevich, for instance, or Pete Mondrian or Vasily Kandinsky had responded to Cubism in that time. And they had shown many others ways into this non-objectivity. Groups of artists were there, such as Circle et Carré or Abstraction, Creation. They are platforms and melting pots for the various abstract movements. Soutine contrasted them with his special materiality of painting, of color, and this absolutely vehement ductus and the image of decaying Mm. flesh. And then popular art movements, also also expressionism or Marc Chagall's lyrical figurations with some Jewish themes are no role models for him. So Tien paints against the current, that's the title of our exhibition, and seeks to his own place in the city that is really full of great artists in that time. Right. And, and you mentioned this sort of extraordinary materiality. How did he achieve those stylistic effects? Because the paint is so thick, isn't it? Yes, that's true. So what interests him are color, color, and color, oil painting, paint application, and landscapes and motifs. Also obsessive of the use of color. So violent ductus streaks and distortions of forms. And sometimes he applied directly from the paint tube on the canvas. This underlines the explosive force of nature also in our painting. Soutine, by the way, was a painter through and through. Drawings are almost not existing. And finally, what would you say is the painting's legacy? After the World War II, um, first William de Kooning, of course, and uh, later Francis Bacon recognised that their own uh, painting practice is in the same way like Soutine's painting practice. And this application of colours is nearly the same. And so Soutine's unique way of working his paintings and uses the brushes reinforced the new generation of gestural painters. So it is especially, and you can read this in the catalogues of Francis Bacon, it is especially these early landscapes from Surrey that fascinated artists such as William de Kooning and, and Bacon and others and reinforced them in their own paintings in the 50s and 60s. Susanna, thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much. Time Soutine Against the Current is at K20 in Dusseldorf from the 2nd of September until the 14th of January next year. It then travels to the Louisiana Museum of Modern Art in Hummelberg, Denmark from the 9th of February to the 14th of July next year. And then the Kunstmuseum Bern in Switzerland from the 16th of August to the 1st of December 2024. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Tan Audio, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. The Week in Art is produced by David Clack, Junie Michalska, and Alexander Morrison. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Martin, Grada, and Susanna. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week for our 250th episode. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.